Hello and welcome to the Find Your Flow talk TV podcast TV show. Gosh darn, podcast radio show. I'm your host, Wentz Whittison. I'm here today with a very special episode. Today's episode is an update and it's still May, late May 2021. And I'm showing houses again, just got done. And I still don't remember my darn intro. Isn't that crazy? I used to do it every day, multiple times a day. It was like clockwork. I knew it cold. I knew it even without thinking. And now I stumble because I haven't done it that much. But that's the way it goes sometimes. So turns out I've got a heck of a long drive ahead of me for some darn reason. Instead of being a one-hour drive, like everybody says it is, it's a two-hour drive today. So... <sighs> Sit back, relax, friend. It might be a long episode if you're into the longer episodes. And if not, maybe skip this episode and come back later. And I know in the last update, if you happen to listen to that one, I was trying to explain how I get myself into these conundrums with the updates because I try to say what, what I'm doing and what I'm going to be doing and timelines and all that. And it's like almost inevitably inevitably when I do an update and I'm trying to explain why I've been lagging on putting out episodes and doing whatever I said I was going to do in the last update it's like I'm just setting myself up for failure sometimes I feel like you know but it is what it is you know the idea is that I tell you oh here's what's been going on here's why I've been lagging and now I fixed it and I thought I had and hopefully there's music, an intro, at the beginning of this episode. If not, then you know I'm still struggling with that tech stuff. <sighs> and it's okay. It's okay, friend, you know. It is what it is. I'm alive. I'm healthy. My family is healthy for the most part. Elena's going through a little bit of stuff here and there kind of stuff. But, you know, it's not life-threatening. And I don't know if I mentioned it i don't think i did not that it was life-threatening what i had either but um i had some uh skin cancer a couple months ago and what was trippy about it was so if you haven't seen me or photos of me or anything i'm pretty white um <laughs> yeah very white i don't get out of the sun at all i don't like the sun when i was young i used to spend a lot of time in the sun and um i'm not caribbean I get. I had a great call with a student investor, real estate investor, the other day, and it was a new new investor I'm working with. And you know, we're talking, and she's like, you know, asking me. She's like, so I gotta ask, you know, Winston, where where are you from? Like, what's your ethnicity? And I was like, oh, you know, and I actually had been doing ancestry not too long ago, and got pretty deep into it one night. And started learning a whole bunch of stuff. I had no idea. I haven't really known much about my family line. You know, um, it just wasn't something my family has been that on top of, I guess. And my mom didn't really know her dad at all. He, she, he died when she was very young. And her mom never really talked about it um, too much because she escaped Germany, you know, Nazi Germany. And so she didn't really like to talk about those times because they were pretty dark times. So there wasn't, there's not a whole lot of information passed down within my family about anything. Oh, there's an accident ahead, and that's why this is the twice as long situation. Gosh darn it. Oh, it's okay, friends. Such is life. I get a podcast more, right? 
So that's fun. And what was the point? Oh, so she asked me, um, you know, I was like, oh, you know, like Eastern European is what I discovered, which was kind of like a rumor, but nobody seemed to really know any darn thing. And, um, you know, that side of my family is very, uh, is Jewish, not very Jewish, but Jewish descent. And um, what's the point? Oh, so then she gets around to like, yeah, you don't sound like a brother, but, you know, there is like, yeah, I get that. You know, sometimes like people see me, uh, we'll be talking on the phone and then, you know, they see me in real life and there's kind of like an, oh, <laughs> like, oh, he's a white guy, uh, which is, I always think funny. Um, but Caribbean, you know, there's a lot of Winstons in the Caribbean. And so she said, those are the two main places that you run into Winstons. And, uh, you know, so that was funny. She's from the Caribbean. So what was the point of this story? I don't know, friend. Point was, oh, so I'm white. <laughs> Very white. Almost see-through white. So I avoid the sun. And, but I w and when I go in the sun, I'm super diligent for the most part about sunscreen and a big floppy hat and sunglasses. Like I'm really cautious, friend. Like over what one might consider I don't know if you can hear that navigation coming through or not. Um, so I'm super careful to not be in the sun. And one day, I swear it happened really quick. And th this is where it gets kind of depressing for me if I'm not careful. But it's like I was outside. We got, you know, backyard, nice backyard. And I spent out time outside in the backyard with my our youngest son. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a hat on and I always wear a hat, I always wear sunscreen and sunglasses. And it's like, I'm just going to be out here for a little bit, hanging out with him in the sun. Do I want to, you know, kill the moment and run in and put a hat on and, you know, the whole works. And I did it. And I swear, I felt like this lightning bolt come down from the sky slash sun right into my forehead and like freaking like lightning bolt burned me right on my forehead just like whoosh, right and I was like dang that was kind of intense but it was like ah, uh, you know I'm just imagining things right so it's not something that really happens and lo and behold over the next couple of days I was looking at it and it's like man like I got something there but here's the other thing it's like that spot happens to be a spot so I trained Brazilian jiu-jitsu I don't know if you knew that, friend. But uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a wrestling, grappling type of sport with submissions, um, like arm bars and choke holds and this kind of stuff. So it's very um, physical. And I happen to use my forehead for a decent amount of positions to, to hold my opponent. And it happens to be that spot on my forehead. And if you've ever seen Harry Potter, where he's got the lightning bolt, it's in the same exact spot, okay? The one we do not speak of gave it to him, right? Voldemort. And it's like that. <laughs> it's like right there. And so it, I had a spot there, and I was like, man, I think it's just a scab. But then when I went to the doctor, they're like, no, that's not a scab. That's skin cancer, but it's you're lucky it's not like the bad one. It, it could turn into the bad one, squalor, I think, but it's just a basal cell um, situation right now. So we got to get it fast while, you know, before it gets you know, potentially deadly. And so I was like, shoot, okay, well, you know, so they tried frying it off or freezing it off with uh, the cold stuff from blanking on. I keep wanting to say carbon dioxide, but I know that's not it. But whatever the, the really cold one is, they freeze it off. So they did that for a while. I used this chemical for a while, and, and it 
didn't work. So I had to go in for surgery. And, you know, it was a tiny little dot, a tiny little dot. Uh, you just look like a little black freckle, okay? And so I was like, all right, you know, guy will go in, like, cut it off, and we'll be good. And he was he was an expert. Um, so much appreciation to him, and I don't even want to butcher his name, uh, but it was – he, he, it was so smooth and easy. And I, you know, it was like, all right, this is great. I'm done moving on. And, um, then when I saw the scar, I was like, damn, that's a pretty decent sized scar for something that that was that small, you know, something that was literally like a bit bigger than maybe the period of a, you know, at the end of a sentence, that size turned into a scar. That's like probably an inch and a half long. And I had no idea. <laughs> You know, and it was just kind of like shocking. It's it's not horrible. I'm not, you know, complaining necessarily. Uh, but it was it was shocking. I'm not gonna lie. Like I it was that was not what I was expecting. I didn't think it would be noticeable. And so it was, I guess, humbling, maybe or not humbling, because I was already humbled by the sun I was already freaking terrified of the sun. But now it's like, holy crud, if that little tiny thing, which happened in it, like what felt like five minutes or an instant, took that did that much damage to where I had to have get this surgery and like, you know, get this decent sized scar. I got to be super careful. And in combination with that, my lips had just been so sun damaged over the years that I had, you know, then I realized like, Oh crap. Like I've had this, what I thought was a freckle on my lips for years. And it seems to be, and it just kept getting flaky and like chapped all the time, no matter how much chapstick I use. And, uh, I just kept, I kept peeling, you know, it doesn't help that I'm like kind of compulsive and I was like picking at it every day. That of course didn't help and made it worse, but I couldn't stop. And, uh, you know, so finally I was like, man, maybe I should have this looked at too. And sure enough, they're like, oh yeah, that's like, you know, almost that's could turn into the bad stuff real quick too. It's like the, the not the least bad C word one, you know, but, uh, it's like, oh shoot. So they gave me some stuff and it's basically like a chemical peel. And I did that every day for seven, twice a day for seven days. And it, you know, bring, it just like fries the crud out of your, out of my lips and, uh, brought out just, you know, blistery type fun goodness for, for about a week and a, or a couple weeks. And, uh, it took off all the layers of, you know, a bunch of layers of the lip and then it yielded and it looks pretty darn good. So that was really nice. Can't complain. Gotta be thankful for that kind of medicine and technology and whatnot and I'm alive so that's good survive it you know I don't want to make it sound over dramatic but at the same time I recognize it and I think that's kind of the interesting part for me my mom passed away from cancer and it oh so here and maybe I've talked about this maybe not but um it was on the right side of her head right by her neck is she got a giant tumor and then she had other you know like brain you know, like cancer growing like in the back of her head kind of thing. And how do you get cancer there? How do you get a freaking tumor right there? And it's like, well, she was on her phone all the dang time, all the dang time. She was on her cell phone. And she said, like, I think this is from all the radiation from from her cell phone. So now you're not going to see science on this. Why? Because cell phone companies would lose tons of money if people knew that like, hey, putting a cell phone near your head is like, taking x-rays to your head every day, all day. You know, like it's not a real great thing to do. So it's downplayed, right? Um, it's in the fine print, which most of us never read, right? Like, oh yeah, it's bad for us. Okay, we know. But how bad is it? Is there science? Of course. 
are they going to tell us that science? No, because people don't understand how science works, right? People generally, from what I can tell, most people or a scary number of people think that science is like out to help them. And to some degree, that's true. And there's a lot of people within science, of course, that they do want to help people. That's, you know, why they get into certain fields maybe, right? But then what happens? Then money comes into the game. And if the people owning the technology or the medicine or the patents or the whatever can make more money by not telling you about that science or just paying somebody to make some different science and then they could use that to just sell more of whatever they're selling, what do you think they're going to do? What do you think is going to happen? Are they going to share with you the stuff that makes their product or service look bad or the stuff that makes it look good? Of course, they're going to use the stuff that makes it look good and they're going to downplay anything else and try to um, criminalize it or try to make it look silly or stupid or not trustworthy. That's the game. That's the game. And that happens in science. That happens in medicine. That happens in all sorts of things. Um, one interesting thing with music, I think music is a good way to uh, to explain some important issues going on. Um, so as a young musician myself, when I start playing music, I, you know, like many musicians, had dreams of playing, you know, big concerts and this and that. And I did play some pretty big concerts and it was really fun. I got to play a lot of music over the years. And when I was in high school and I was in a couple bands, not school band, I was in the school bands, but also in some punk bands and uh, swing band, punk ska band and with friends, you know, so it was a lot of fun. And we, you know, first time we got played on the radio, we thought, oh, now this is our big break. We're going to be famous and tour touring. Like, that's a dream for many musicians. Like, oh, I can't wait to tour across the country or across the world, and we're going to play all over. It's going to be amazing, right? That's a dream for a lot of musicians. And there's kind of like a – where am I going with this? I guess, like, pay-to-play – well, pay-to-play is definitely a thing, meaning – a lot of people imagine that bands sometimes get paid all this money or artists get paid all this money to perform at a venue. And there are definitely cases where that's true. But there are also a lot of cases, which most people probably don't realize, where the artist is actually producing the show or the event themselves. What that means is that the artist or the band or whatever is actually renting out the venue and then selling their own tickets to their own show and making money that way. Okay, so that's being a producer, being, uh, you know, producing events and whatnot. And the reason I think it's important to share this is because a lot of people have very big misconceptions about a lot of things. And this particular thing I have experience in. And so hopefully you can draw your own conclusions and parallels to other industries with what I'm going to be sharing and kind of my perspective on this and experience with this. So as a as a musician, you know, we we got that first radio play and it was a local radio station and we were super excited. You know, that was it's like oh my gosh, we finally finally got played on the radio. You know, we had put a bunch of money or what we thought was a bunch of money at the time, you know, into getting our per, uh, getting recorded professionally and getting our album produced. And so it was a big deal. We were super excited and we got played. And and then, you know, it's like, all right, 
we're we're about to go on tour. We're about to be famous, right? This is amazing, great, yay!" And and then we waited, and it you know we waited some more, and like no, our phone wasn't ringing. Nobody was calling to book a shows. Like nothing really happened, and it's kind of like, "Whoa, well, okay." And so we just kept doing shows, and eventually, I uh, the band went a different way than I did. We, we split up. They, those guys played together for many years. They just they still play together. Uh, most of them. Um, so it was really cool, you know, good for them. And I went off in a different direction, but it was a big lesson that for me in that there's a lot of, and then I would get, so then I went solo, right. And I was solo as a musician, as a DJ, I would DJ events and then I would play live music, uh, saxophone or sing over the recording. So I could be like a one man band. I didn't have to depend on anybody. I could get paid a lot more for these gigs because I wasn't playing original music, right? Which is really hard to promote and produce and, and get like anybody to pay for because nobody wants to hear original music. Everybody wants to hear pop music, popular music, music they hear on the radio, right? It's it's really hard if you don't if you've never tried to produce your own music or art or anything to gain support. You know, uh, friends and family maybe they'll support you for a while if you're lucky and that's awesome. Or maybe they'll say, why don't you get a real job? You know. <laughs> That, that might happen too. Fortunately, I had uh, my mom used to support me. She used to come out to a, a lot of my shows and bring some of her friends. They'd come out and support. So I was awesome. My dad would come out sometimes too. So I was very fortunate in that respect. Uh, but I was also ingrained that, hey, you got to have a real job. You got to have a backup because this, you know, isn't going to pay the bills. So I always had that in the back of my head too. And what I learned being an artist slash as I got into it and I got hooked up with uh, I got a manager at some point I moved back down to San Diego Elena and I moved back down to San Diego from San Francisco area and I was trying to make it as a DJ but I also knew I needed more money because I was only getting um, you know a couple gigs a week and it wasn't enough money to, to live off of so I started teaching music which was a dream come true I started filling out my calendar with private students so I was really stoked about that so I was doing full-time music I was teaching during the days and evenings and then playing gigs on the weekends so I was like cool mission accomplished dream accomplished would I like to play bigger show sure so I was kind of working toward that and then I got a manager and I did got, get to start playing some big shows like because this guy knew or actually no first I got a partner a business partner and but he was experienced as a promoter so he knew how to put on events downtown San Diego and we started doing some of the medium-sized clubs you know not the small clubs not the big super clubs, but I kind of like the middle range. And that was really, really fun. I really, I would say, cut my teeth as a DJ in those years and got to meet cool people and open up for some big names. And it was really fun. I was living the dream. You know, I was out all hours of the night and producing some music and promoting events and the whole thing. And that was cool. Where am I going with this? Um, okay, I try to cut to the part where... Basically, I guess, like, okay, well, I was making, so when I, when I, so after I stopped working with that guy, um, out of that, I ended up getting a manager who was a friend, he, but he was also really working as a promoter and, uh, and promoter means somebody that's like putting on events, putting on dance or any kind of like music events, you know, um, promoting for the events. And so he, you know, doing shows with him or for him, 
as a DJ and we did a Vegas tour, which was super, super fun because he was good at logistics and pulled off this amazing little Vegas tour. And that was a dream come true, right? Get paid to go party in Vegas and, you know, rock a couple of clubs out there. And that was super fun. And then it's like, we got back and it's like, okay, well now what? Right. Cause it's like, check that box, check that box, check that box. That was amazing. Okay. Well, what's the next, doesn't it just like keep magically going? Like, didn't we do it? And you know, what's the next one? And it just became, I started to realize like, there's always this kind of like idea for me, you know, just for myself, the experience I was having was like, I'm going to be like, I had a goal. I worked really hard and then I hit the goal and I kept thinking that there was going to be like that moment where it just like magically sailed off into the sunset, right? It's like, oh, now that I played this gig, now it's all going to come together. Now that I got played on the radio, now that I produced my own song and got it and played it here, you know, like I kept having these imaginary goal lines that once I crossed that line, that was the one. That's the one that's going to put me over. That's the one that's going to make it all happen. And after I had a few kind of those experiences and then it didn't just magically happen, I realized like, no, it's not not reality. Maybe it is for, you know, one or two people here or there, like they get picked up by a label that's already, you know, just looking for their next person to push through the system. But I'm not, I'm not that guy, you know, and I actually might've been almost, almost in a position where I could have gone for something like that. A really good friend of mine. Whoa. What is this? Save 48 minutes. Of course I want to save 48 minutes. What the hell? Oh, yeah. All right. That just cut down my time by 48 minutes. All right. Now we're talking, friend. Whew. All right. Podcast episode just got a lot shorter. So anyway, that was a big realization for me. That was a really big, you know, it took it took a while for me to come to that realization. It's like, no, I I can't just outsource all of it. I can't just have the magic. I mean, maybe I could, but again, it's like, I, I didn't, it wasn't responsible or wise of me to give away that much power over my own career. Right. And it was awesome to have a manager that was managing a bunch of that stuff for me. That was the dream. That was a dream come true for me and for many artists I know. Right. Like, Oh, I just, I'm going to have a manager who's going to just do book all the shows for me and I get paid and I get to just cruise around a party and rock shows. That was a dream come true. Right. So I, I can't knock it because I did it and it's awesome. And I, it was definitely a great memory and it was also again, a lesson. So then I started producing my own shows. I went out on my own and started my own company. I already had my own company, but I wasn't focused on it and started doing my own shows. And then as, then I had to kind of put on that manager hat, right? So I had the man, the artist hat on and now it's like, Oh, well, if I'm the one dealing with the clubs, and I'm the one hiring the DJs and well, I'm going to hire myself, of course. So I started locking up these clubs for, you know, a Wednesday night here, a Thursday night there, a weekend, you know, Friday night here, Saturday once a month here, a weekly there and started to build out this schedule. So I had a circuit. So I had income from these clubs and, you know, restaurants and whatnot on a regular basis. And then I saw my music lessons and whatnot. Okay. We'll get to the point, man. The point being, um, I'm trying to like say it in a in a meaningful way, I guess. Like, 
without just saying it. Um, okay, so at some point, okay, so kind of realizing again that it's not like all magically just going to happen necessarily, right? And that I was getting, that I was taking more responsibility. I was putting on my own shows and realizing again this idea of like, well, I want consistent income, I want consistent gigs. Okay, well, let me build a relationship with this club owner and book something on a regular basis. Okay, well now, you know, I get 200 bucks a week from this guy and I pay my DJs and so they're busy on this night and now let me go lock up another club. And so I did that and then I had my circuit and I had my DJs that I would hire and I'd hire myself so I got to play and then I would network with other DJs in other areas and I got to, you know, kind of trade out nights, right? Like, okay, you give me a night at this place and I give you a night at that place. And that was cool. You know, that was a really neat thing to be able to work. And then, okay, here's a, an important point. So then somewhere along the line, I was introduced, uh, somebody I knew through a business relationship said like, oh, you're into music, you're a DJ, you're a music producer. Well, do you know uh, so-and-so? And I was like, yeah, you know, actually we hired uh, him and his, he had a couple other musical partners. We, we hired one of his uh, musical partners to DJ at a couple of our events. So I was familiar with, with him. I didn't know him personally, but I knew who he was and I knew his music. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, he's, you know, looking to produce some new music and you play, mu you play uh, instruments, right? Yeah. He's like, okay, well, you know, uh, here's this, go hook up with them. So I did. And I brought my bass because he wanted me to play some bass. And I laid down some bass tracks for him. And it was like, man, this is so cool. You know, this guy's successful and um, playing music and he's producing, going to produce some music with, with my bass lines or, you know, bass lines I'm writing for this guy. And at the end, um, you know, he, him and I were talking and like, you know, he's a little bit older than me. So it was like, and he had like a pretty nice house. I don't know if he owned it, but I was just like, kind of, you know, just impressed. Like, man, because I, because I knew who this guy was. He's been around. He's definitely like somebody who's more experienced and played a lot bigger shows and a lot longer than me. So I was just trying to absorb it all. Right. And, um, you know, we're talking and he's got this other side business he was building out and um, he gets the part, like, we're just kind of talking and, uh, He's like, yeah, you know, it's just got harder as a DJ. It just got harder and harder to find those one thousand dollar gigs. And I was just like, what? Like, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head, I was like, what? Like, this guy only charges a thousand dollars per gig, and that was that was way more than I was making. Granted, I was, you know, about two hundred bucks a night, um, but at the time for for the clubs and whatnot. But it was like. In my imagination, it was like, oh, this guy's got to be getting like five to ten grand a gig, you know, and I can't wait till I can make a thousand and work my way up to, you know, like this guy's level. And when he said that and it was like, oh, those gigs are hard to come by nowadays because there's so much competition and the, the industry got saturated with everybody's a DJ all of a sudden, you know, DJ equipment came way down. People switched from vinyl to CDJs. And, you know, everybody could, um, and then laptops, you know, and like everybody had laptops, so everybody's a DJ all of a sudden, like nobody knew anything about mixing or culture or any of that. But, um, but that was a big eye-opening experience for me. It actually floored me. It actually shifted my whole, <laughs> my whole sense of stuff because it's like, dang, if this guy who's, you know, I know, and I know a lot of people, especially in uh, Northern California, you know, and that's like a thousand dollars is a really good gig. I'm, I'm not in. I'm not even in the right like. 
I, I had no idea what's going on. It, it just basically rocked my whole idea of what I was trying to do. Not that I was doing it for the money, but uh, you know, that's definitely a part of it, right? Like I got a new wife and someday we wanted to have kids and like own our own house and like, you know, all this stuff. And if I'm hustling, they just at the top end or what I thought was the top end, maybe make a thousand bucks that, that just put, changed the perspective of everything for me. So, um, then I realized like, okay, these other guys who are like the top, top guys, they're the one percenters. So like the one per top, you know, 10% of the one percenters making thousands and thousands, more than a, a thousand bucks a night. So it just made it seem so much even further away, you know? And, ah, here's, here's where I was going with all this. Goodness. I'm glad we stuck through this long enough to try to get a point across. Okay. So this was back in like 2000 four, five, six, seven, eight, those kind of years, I think. Um, and so I was 21 when I moved back from NorCal with Elena and it was, yeah, 2004. So I had to be 24 and, um, you know, doing the club thing and it was hard to start building a night at a new club, right? Go to a club, they don't have anybody there. It's a dead night, right? And my goal as a promoter was to start to build build a following there, right? Bring people in, sell drinks, sell food if they had food at the place. And that as – so back then, what was known as house music, which is now known as like electronic dance music generically is kind of the generic term for it. Sometimes they used to call it techno, tech house. I used to play disco house, funky house, big room house, that kind of stuff. Um, people hated it. People freaking hated it overall. Except for all, you know, like, gosh darn it, lady, shush. My GPS. Okay, yeah, go. Save my, save nine minutes. Um, the people hated it, by and large, you know. And I knew, and I think... A, fair amount of us kind of had a sense that at some point it would become big. It'd be mainstream techno house music. Some point it would have its day and it would be the thing, but it wasn't back then. Okay. People hated it. Hip hop was still all the rage. Hip hop dominated, especially the clubs because people wanted to grind and get funky and like be all up on each other. And that was the vibe that was prevalent. And so what would happen would be like, I'd be playing some house music and it'd be downtown San Diego and people would just be like, oh, DJ, you know, when are you going to play something we can dance to? Like, I don't know. <laughs> you can't dance? You can't dance to this? What, what can you dance to? Oh, you know, dance music. It's like, this is dance music. What the heck is wrong with you? It's like, no, hip-hop. Oh, hip-hop? That's not dance music. That's, I had a different, different idea about what that was. Um, but it was frustrating. It's frustrating, friend, because, like, people just couldn't handle anything that wasn't the stuff they play all day every day and hear 20 times a day on the radio like that was all they knew and that was all they cared about and that was all they wanted knew how to dance to and it was extremely frustrating to try to build a following in that kind of environment um but you know we we did it and it was awesome and it was underground for the most part still kind of had an underground vibe because that's who listened to that music back then and the gay kids the gay clubs so then i kind of discovered like oh like most of the gay club or some of the gay clubs were where they loved house music and so i started getting into 
um, there was a open night at one of the clubs in a very prevalent gay neighborhood here in San Diego. And I met like the coolest people, you know, I just started getting in, connected. And this was like right when I moved back to San Diego, I think, or uh, maybe a little bit after. And that really helped me meet a lot of other DJs and industry people and uh, get a lot of gigs out of that. So, okay. So what started to become noticeable to me was the opportunity to kind of sell out, right? It's like, I can keep battling this and playing the music that I want to play and making, you know, a couple hundred bucks a night, which was, you know, great. So I was still really happy with it. But, you know, getting all this, all these complaints and every night dealing with the same stupid, like, hey, DJ, when are you going to play some dance music? When are you going to play something we can dance to? Why don't you play any good music? And it's like, dude, screw you guys. <laughs> I'm going to play what I want to play. And But, you know, eventually I would break down sometimes because it's like, man, everybody here wants to just keep hearing the same. So it's like, well, it's easy enough. I just buy, spend 10, 20 bucks on the top 40 and I just play that over and over and people freaking loved it. And it was so depressing, friend. It was so depressing. I can't tell you how depressing that was to just be like, I don't, why am I even here? Why? Like, this is what I, I was so looking forward to, like building a night where I play music that's not my own music and that I don't even like just to get paid to call myself, you know, an artist or a DJ or whatever, like to party. Like, no, this this is depressing. What am I trying to do? What's the point of this, really, at the end of the day? You know, I kind of had enough taste of things to know, like, I like elements of this, but this isn't what I feel in my heart that I'm trying to do for the world is play other people's music that talks about just bumping and grinding and, you know, smoking and drinking. Like that's not, I'm not adding anything of value to society with this scenario. And so it's kind of this point of, do I play what people want to hear? Or do I play what I want to hear and do it because I love it and I'm passionate, but I will get far less gigs and make far less money. That was the turning. That was like the options that seemed to be before me. Okay. And yeah. And so that was just kind of like the thing. And then, okay. So I was newly married. We got married in uh, January, 2004. So right after we moved back down to San Diego and what was oh there's crazy traffic oh this is a little sketchy sorry friend focus what the heck so okay so you know i was i was hustling i was hustling friend i was out till two or three every night promoting you know putting flyers on cars and all around town and whatever and you know uh doing events and i was out late and elena was super cool and supportive you know she knew that was something very important to me and she supported me in that. And she got a job as a teacher, which she went to school for. And she wasn't making a ton of money below the poverty line. You know, we are both below the poverty line, especially here in Southern California. And, you know, she supported me while also like, eh, you know, when are you going to start making some more money kind of thing, you know, subtly. And I wanted to make more money and I kept thinking like, oh, I'm going to do it. And then I had that realization like, oh, shoot, like even these guys I think are crushing it, you know, and again, $1,000 for a gig is nothing to sneeze at. I'm not downplaying it all. It's just not what I thought I was aiming for. Okay. And when that became aware for me, that's when I was like, okay, you know, I've got my, these other plans, they were kind of on the back burner, but 
I should start getting, you know, going with this real estate stuff because that was always part of my plans. Uh, flip houses, become a realtor, a real estate investor, get wealthy so that I can do whatever I want, you know, and I can do music for fun. I can play the music I want and not have to play music to sell out just to, to make money. That was it, okay? So I started getting my real estate license. That's when I got licensed in 2005. And so then I was able to do that. And the point being, friend, I'm trying to circle around to meandering around. There's a point is that, oh, weddings. That's where I was going. So weddings, right? Because it's like, okay, well, if I can't make as much money as I thought in the clubs doing the music that I actually want to, then... Uh, you know, what are the other ways I can make money as a solo musician or instrumentalist? And it's like, okay, as a saxophonist, I can make a couple hundred bucks for an hour. Well, that's cool. But I, you know, realistically, I can only do one gig a day. Um, you know, so that's basically 200 bucks. So I'm still right back at that same kind of like $200 a day max kind of glass ceiling or whatever that I kind of sort of hit. And I, so I got my first wedding gig. It was a nice couple, you know, they had a very small budget. They knew that I was is my first wedding, so I gave them a great deal, 500 bucks. And they were stoked and I was stoked cuz it's like, "Oh my gosh, 500 bucks. This is more than double what I've been able to make up until that point." And I did that that first wedding. And the guy and the guy had um, you know, he liked electronic uh well, sometimes referred to as intelligent music or like down tempo now maybe. And uh, he produced, he, he burned some CDs, like four, four hours of, or maybe like two hours of down-tempo intelligent music, which is cool if you're into it. And if you're not, it's just like, eh, it's like background music. It's elevator music, maybe, or whatever. So, um, and I just missed the thing that was supposed to cut off all the time for me. Oh, well, friend. So, oh, darn it. Anyway, what were we saying? And I did the, um, oh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm doing this wedding. It's my first wedding, right? And nice little venue, and I'm playing this guy's music, right? And then the CD was over, and the second CD was over, and I, and I just put the first one back on, and people were getting bored. People were getting bored, and like noticeably bored, because this thing was just like, you know, going on, and nobody knows any of the music, and it's kind of different than what people are used to, and this one lady comes over, and she's like, hey, DJ, you know, like, can you please play something else? I was like, no, I can't, <laughs> and she's like, oh, and then, you know, so like, I look like a jerk, but then she came back, and she was nice, and she's like, please, you know, like, can you please play something else? Please, we're bored out of our minds. I was like, okay. So I start playing another song, and like less than a minute into the song, the groom comes over, and he's furious. He's like red in the face, like, what are you doing? I told you what to play, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, holy crap. Like, I've never had somebody yell at me while I'm DJing, right? Like, it, that was just like, what the heck just happened? And she came, she saw, the, you know, the lady that asked for me to play something else, she came up and gave me some money, and she's like, I'm so sorry. I had, I had no idea. And it's like, it's okay. I didn't either. And... uh you know, then it's like, I'm kind of standing around, it's hot, I'm in a tuxedo, I'm thirsty, I didn't think to bring any darn water, and, you know, nobody's bringing me drinks. Um, usually, as, you know, club DJ, people are just bringing me drinks, making sure I'm always fed and have <laughs> liquor and or water. And nobody was like, 
helping me do anything. And so it's like, okay, I've got to get my own drinks. And like, this guy's yelling at me. And like, it, could only, it was just crazy. It was kind of hectic. And I was stressed and like, at that point, kind of like scared, like, shoot, like, what? oh, and then another awkward thing happened. And it's just like, oh my gosh, this is a horrible experience. I'm never doing this again. But then I cash that check and it's like, well, what do I do, friend? What do I, What would you do? What would you do? You could make more than twice what you're making. You might hate it. Would you do it? Would you do it for your family? Would you do it for your friends? Would you do it for yourself? Or would you stay true to what you want and, and then, you know, be have less money, have less freedom, right? So that that was the fork, right? I, this is the sellout opportunity. Like I sell out and go down this wedding path or, um, you know, I stick to what I love and do and don't make much money at all and, you know, struggle. And my mom had been in the wedding industry for years. So I was very familiar with the wedding industry. I'd been around brides my whole life and like makeup and, you know, photography and the whole thing. So it wasn't completely foreign to me, but I had never like worked a wedding. So it was an interesting situation, right? And I, but I liked the money. I got to admit, I was like, shoot, I, what if I just did one of these a week? That would be two and a half gigs I'd be doing anywhere else. So what if I just started booking a couple more weddings here or there? So I did. And I developed, uh, you know, my marketing, started getting some weddings and got better and like start, you know, just kind of going through the whole thing. So then I got to the point um, down the road, you know, after I've been doing that for some years and, you know, taking on corporate gigs because then I realized like, oh, corporate events are actually pretty cool. Those are pretty easy. And But it was the same thing. It was like pop music. Uh, oh, I just play top 40, which was on the one hand very easy because I could just buy whatever the you know top 10 is on the billboard charts and I'm freaking good to go like I didn't have to think I didn't have to be you know picking on digging through all the carts at the record store to find the best you know dance floor bangers and um you know put my own style out there and generate a crowd that would actually like the kind of music that I like so it was kind of like cool because I just walked into a party where there's like you know a few hundred people and they're all there to dance and they're all there to get you know have fun and celebrate and uh and I got paid more money. So there was these parts of it that's like, well, if I just focus on these parts, this isn't bad, you know? Like, yeah, I'm I'm not playing music that I necessarily like, but these people love it. I'm making them happy. I'm service I'm serving people, and that's that's a good thing, right? I'm making all these people's nights and and lives, you know, they're they're getting married. This is the happiest day of their life. And they're going to remember this, and I got to be a part of it. And um, I got paid well and you know these so it's like this battle right like am I selling out am I not selling out like I don't know I, kinda and I got to a point where you know I was hiring um, again you know my I had a couple of DJs my, my good friends that I was hiring for these gigs but they were not really cut out to do the corporate stuff I learned because <laughs> it's a different game and they sure as heck weren't cut out to do the weddings because that's an even different game so I had to kind of expand, and so I started reaching out to some other DJs I knew from from the club scene. And uh, one of my buddies, he's still he's out DJing again. I'll, I'll give him a shout out, Raul Iroc Rios, I R O K Iroc. That was his DJ name, DJ Iroc. And uh, now I think he goes by Raul, and but some people don't know Raul, DJ Iroc Rios, and. You know, I hit him up and I was like, hey, buddy, you want, you know, I've got this corporate gig. I got this gig. Do you want to, you know, I can pay you this and do you want to, do you want to play? And he's like, no. He's like, well, why not? And he's like, well, because I play music for me. I play my music. And I was like, all right, you know, like I got it. I, I could appreciate that. 
he would rather work a day job during the week that supported him and then play the music he wanted on the weekends so that he could play the music he wanted to play. So that was kind of like a different different take on the whole thing, right? And it's like, man, all right. But and then it kind of like then I kind of got bummed at myself. It's like, well, why am I, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I selling out? And so I had this mentor around that time, and I brought it up with him. He's a music, you know, was a music guy who had a lot of experience. He had a band back in the day, and they got signed to a major label. And he learned kind of the ins and outs of that whole game, like once you get to that next level. Because like back then, remember, I don't know if you remember, friend, depending on how old you are, but back in the day, there was like this, it was like this, the dream for many artists and bands and probably like, you know, actors and actresses was like get signed, get signed to a label. They, you know, then you get your checks and you, the royalties and you get paid and you're rich, you live that rock star lifestyle out in the sunset and you're, until you're, you know, toast, right? That was like the dream. Just get signed to a major label, tour all over the world, live the rock star lifestyle and call it a day. And then, you know, over the years, it's like, no, that model is not what you think it is. I started to really learn that, like, from people who have been through it. It's like, yeah, it's not what you think it is. It's it's not like you just make money and you're done and that whole thing. There's a lot more – there's more to it than that. And I'm, I don't want to get into it all, but I kind of want to just kind of start to help you understand. So I was learning more about, like, how to be an independent artist and, and live, make a lifestyle, make a real lifestyle, being able to afford to live being a full-time artist that was the, the goal and I was doing it to a certain degree right um, but not at the level that I had dreamed right there was room for improvement and when I had that that conversation with my friend oh so then I talked to my mentor friend about that and I was like hey friend like or friend tour um, you know I, I feel like I'm selling out like how am I what am I doing with my art if it's not even my art anymore I'm just playing music that other people want to hear I don't even really like it but it's paying the bills you know like I feel like I've sold out and he's like well you know that's one way to look at it Tim Sweeney by name was his name um rest in peace and he was like well you know I could argue that selling 40 hours of your waking life for a job you don't particularly like is selling out and I was like holy jeez like he blew my mind with that road closed and eight mountain gosh darn it what the heck is going on here I don't know if you hear that friend but there's a little voice that jumps into the headset and it's like oh the road is closed oh you're gonna take forever to get home so just trying to pay attention to what I'm doing while I'm recording so that that was a really interesting perspective, right? His point was like, hey, people can call you a sellout or you may call yourself a sellout, but you're playing music for people that are very genuinely happy to hear it. So you're doing a good service. You're getting paid to do it. You're not like going against your um, ethics or anything in a sense, right? It's not like I'm doing bad things. It's just like not necessarily the ideal things. So he basically said, like, you know, somebody that's working 40 hours a week at a job that's not their favorite kind of music or whatever, doing it just for the money, that is selling out. And so I was like, dang, you know, I agree. I agree. That is selling out. Like, yeah, you're playing your music. And not to judge him because, you know, good for him. And I, I love the guy. So I'm not trying to throw any shade that way. But I'm just saying, as I was trying to figure out my own perspectives on it, it's like, well, yeah, where do you draw that line? How do you define it? Well, we each get to make up our own mind how we define that.
right? So let's say that um, so I, I continued to do corporate gigs and, and ramp those up and weddings because that's where the money was. And then I could produce my own music at night. And if anybody wanted to listen, great. And if not, I didn't really care because that wasn't what I was doing it for. Aha, right? So it gave me some creative license and freedom in that respect. And okay, so that's kind of the framework. That's the baseline, friend. I think I should probably wrap up this episode. It's probably super long and uh, catch up on the next one. So let's do that real quick. So I appreciate you still listening. I've been talking for a good while and I'm going to try to get into the next episode real quick here uh and i realized that i said in the last update i was going to put out a bunch of episodes and here we are two weeks later and i still haven't done it see see what i deal with with this guy friend what can we do stuck with me i'm stuck with me all right until next time my friend be flowing